Your organization is perfectly designed to create the behaviors you're currently experiencing. And the beautiful optimism inside of that is, you can say to yourself first, yeah, I guess we created these problems, didn't we? Yes, that's true. But you also have the power to change them because you can redesign your organization to create a different set of outcomes and behaviors. And that is in all of our power. Welcome to Tractionville, the podcast for companies running on EOS. I'm your host, Chris White, along with my co-host, Ben Miller. And uh, you know what? We've got a great guy with us today. He hails from Ann Arbor, Michigan. So for all you Michigan fans out there, buckle up. This is going to be a good one. Um, we've got Rich Sheridan with us today in Tractionville. Rich is the co-founder, CEO, and chief storyteller for Menlo. And he's also an author, and he's got a couple great books, Rich, welcome to Tractionville. Great to be with you, Chris and Bench. So, Rich, we, we got to go right to the title of your book. So, everybody, Rich wrote a book called The Chief Joy Officer. And his team at, at work call him the chief storyteller. So, let's start there, Rich. What was it that prompted you to, to write this book? You know, we have focused on joy as a as the goal of our organization since our founding in 2001. We're a software design and development firm. We fundamentally believed that uh, the way software is typically designed and constructed and delivered was broken. Uh, we chose to change it. We we refer to a big mission of ending human suffering in the world as it relates to technology, and so we kind of turn it around and look at joy as the outcome of the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds. Uh, I wrote a book in uh, 2013 called Joy Inc. And um, very popular. <laughs> and people are uh, wondering, you know, how did we construct the leadership model within Menlo? We're, we're kind of an unusual organization. We don't have bosses, certainly have leaders. Uh, so not on, no emphasis on hierarchical authority. And so Chief Joy Officer was really uh, an outcropping of the first book, in particular, a chapter in the first book called, called Growing Leaders, Not Bosses. And it's really about how do you cultivate this uh, intentional culture of joyful leadership? All right, well, you can't leave us hanging like that. So give us some of the principles that lay out to building leaders. <laughs> well, you know, I, it, this actually isn't in the book itself, uh, but it came out as a, a kind of a, an outcropping of the book when I started speaking about, about it. You know, you become an author and people want you to come keynote their conferences and things. And I started comparing the forces at work on a human organization to the forces at work on an airplane. So you think of lift and weight and thrust and drag. Well, you've got the lift of human energy the weight of bureaucracy, the thrust of purpose, and the drag of fear. Hmm. So from that, uh, the question is, what are some sp specific things we can do as leaders, uh, particularly top leaders in the organization, to keep those forces properly in balance? More lift than weight, more thrust than drag. Um, so more human energy than bureaucracy, more purpose-focused, le less fear. 
And so uh, what I talk about are some key points, things like um, start with purpose, understand who you serve and what would delight look like for them. And, and I encourage people to think outside their normal stakeholders, mm. because, you know, thinking about your customers, your employees, or your shareholders or stakeholders or investors, that's still self-serving. I want people to think in their organizations past those traditional stakeholders. For us, we think of the end users who are going to use our work someday. They're people who don't pay us for what we do. They don't often know who we are because we're building software for businesses that are one day going to deploy them either to their employees, their staff, or perhaps all the way out to their customers. And we want to delight them. You know, software often tortures people and we don't want to do that. <laughs> And so, uh, so every organization has that opportunity to look out and really, you know, I think if you think about the, an aircraft engine, you know, jet engine or propeller, it is the strength of that engine that pulls you through tough times like we've been through the last year, right? That idea of focusing on purpose and making sure you understand what your organization's purpose is and one that really inspires people. Hmm. You know, nobody's coming to work every day saying, I can't wait to make more money for my shareholders, you know, that sort of thing. Just not inspiring. But a, but a well-honed purpose yeah. is one that can really pull you through tough times. Um, focus on leadership over hierarchical authority. Right? You can build leaders anywhere in your organization. They don't need to wait for promotion. They don't need to wait for the corner office or the title or the authority over team members. You can lead from anywhere. Um, focus on systems thinking versus bureaucratic thinking. Right. This idea of creating powerful, strong systems, and you can start jettisoning the procedure manuals and all the policies. I love when Mary Barra, when she took over as CEO of General Motors, she was confronted with a 14-page dress code policy. Can you imagine that? No, no, God. What, what would employees of General Motors have to do every morning? Like when they go into their closet, they're like, okay, what? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about bureaucracy. Yeah. And so she threw it out and she said, dress appropriately. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so... Um, Caring for the team, caring up to the leaders, caring down to the frontline workers, caring across for our peers. Um, focus, you know, that energy on making sure we're all okay in the organization. Mm. Uh, and storytelling. Storytelling is a fundamental component of leadership. Storytelling is as old as human history. Right. You know, around campfires or totems, anthems of nations. This is what binds us together as, as tribes, as communities, as nations. Uh, stories connect us from heart to mind and body to spirit, concept to reality. Hmm. You know, everybody glazes over when the PowerPoint deck of percentages and bar, bar charts and pie charts and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, tell me a story. It'll live in me forever. You don't need anyone's permission to change the world. At Roundtable Companies, we'll work together to discover your most compelling story for a book, film, or brand. Come to our table and tell your tale. We'll listen, and together we'll discover the story that needs to be told to create your greatest impact. Their clients say it all. 
Dr. Danny McVetty, founder and CEO of Lap of Love, said, RTC has made my lifelong dream of writing a book easier and more imaginative than I would have thought possible. I had no idea where or how to start, but with RTC, all I had to do was talk. They take my ideas, organize them, put color to my stories, and make them into a compilation that I'm incredibly proud of. This process has quite literally been a dream come true. Start telling your story today. Visit roundtablecompanies.com for more information. Rich, is this typically when, you know, somebody has such a strong platform around an idea, it tends to be either this gift that they were given or almost the opposite, like the struggle that they overcame and on the other side, or this beautiful thing. What is this joy idea for you? Is that, was that always, you know, is Rich always the joyful guy his whole life or this, <laughs> was there a transformation somewhere along the way? Well, <laughs> you know, I think, I think my life uh, mirrors a little bit more of uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey kind of thing where uh, I, I did start out very joyful. I, I touched computers when I was just a kid in high school back in 1971, uh, fell in love with the idea of writing code, uh, got a job writing code before I could even drive a car, eventually went to the, you know, Go Blue University of Michigan, uh, got a couple of degrees in computer science and computer engineering, launched a career that, quite frankly, looked wildly successful from the way the world measures success. Mm-hmm. And yet, by my mid-30s, I wanted out. I didn't want to be anywhere near this industry because all I was having was frustration. I was working long days. My wife would look at tired me at the end of the day when the my cold dinner was sitting in the microwave waiting to be reheated as I got home. And she'd say, honey, did you get a lot done today? You look really tired. And I said, no, I got nothing done today. Absolutely nothing. And it was chaos every single day. It was firefighting. It was phones ringing off the hook with problems. It was blown budgets, missed deadlines, poor quality, unhappy me, unhappy team members, unhappy customers, unhappy everybody. And I looked ahead, like in my mid-30s, I looked ahead and I said, I I can't do this for another 30 years. It'll kill me. Right? And I was contemplating just abandoning it all and getting out. But of course, I had these, you know, three lovely daughters, a great wife, a wonderful home and, you know, and, you know, all the things that a good paying job afforded me. But, you know, I was burning out. Right. And so my inner optimist kicked in. I was stuck in a room full of manure. I was going to keep digging because I knew there was a pony in this room somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> And so my journey out led me to authors and books, and but not books on technology. It was books on how to organize human teams more effectively, mm. how to employ systems thinking, books like Tom Peters' In Search of Excellence, Peter Drucker's books on management, Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline on the Art and Practice of Building a Learning Organization, which really taught me a lot about systems thinking. And all of this was telling me there was a better way of doing things. I had to find it. And so you had to create it. Yep. And, you know, and I, I guess I fundamentally knew, and probably this is where the joyful guy comes in, Bench. I knew there was a better way of doing things. I, I didn't know what it was. I am wired to know things when I see them. Like, in other words, if I'm searching, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I 
do have this conviction that once I see it, I will know it. And that actually happened when I read Kent Beck's book on extreme programming, where it talked about a different way to organize a software team. And then I saw a video on an industrial design firm in California called IDEO. Nightline had done a, an episode on them. And it was like, boom, click moment. 1999, I knew exactly where I was going. I've never looked back since. And that, is that when you went out on your own? Yeah, is, is that the tipping point? Actually, it, <laughs> there were a couple of key tipping points uh, between about 1997 and 2001 when we started Menlo. Uh, 1997, my boss at Interface Systems, a tired old public company I worked for, wanted to promote me to VP. And I said, no. And he was shocked and he was, he's a really nice guy, but he was pissed. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, Rich, you're the guy I've been grooming you for this. And you said no to me. And I said, I looked at him, I said, Bob, I don't want to sign up for the uncapped personal commitment that's required of an executive inside of a tired public company. I don't want to wake up 10 years from now and realize I missed the best parts of being a dad. And yet I went home that night and I reflected on the offer. And I thought about all these books I've been reading. I thought about all the belief that things could be better. And I came back the next day and I told him, well, I, I said to him, I'll take the job. And he was surprised because he kind of yelled at me that I yeah. threw me out of his office. <laughs> and I said, but on one condition, which was a bold thing for somebody to say who just pissed off his box the, last, the previous night. <laughs> And he said, what's that? And I said, I'm going to build the best damn software team that Ann Arbor has ever seen. And he looks at me and says, what do you mean? What, what happened last night? What, what changed? You said no, and now you come back with this? Yeah. I said, Bob, this is my moment. I've been waiting for this moment for probably 15 years, and I'm ready. And, uh, and I said, but I'm going to need your support because this is going to be hard. And fortunately, he was there for me. Every time I slowed down, every time I, you know, thought maybe I can't do this, he'd put his gentle hand on my shoulder and whisper in my ear, Rich, I got you covered. Keep going. You're doing the right thing. And so when 1999 hit, boom, knew what I was doing. I was already in the perch of VP of a R&D team. And over the next two years, transformed that tired old public company into something that looks like Menlo does today. And then, of course... 2001 came and it was all taken away when the internet bubble burst, but they couldn't take away what I'd learned in those two years. And that became the basis for my life. Uh, yeah. Nice. Nice. Talk to me. You, you said, you said in the beginning, we have leaders, not bosses. We don't have the typical hierarchical structure. So that's really fascinating to me because I, I like process and I like structure. And can you paint us like a mental image of what that structure looks like? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. I, I remember we do all these tours of Menlo. So we get three to 4,000 people a year travel from all over the world just to come see us. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> and, uh, and now they're coming virtually and <laughs> literally at the same rate, the same breadth, in fact, probably greater breadth we've had. 55 countries come visit us just in the last nine months alone. Um, and they're looking to see what you're asking about. What is the structure here? And I remember one time we had this visitor from Nationwide Financial, Cam Wolf was his name. And this was early on at Memo. Probably we were about, I don't know, maybe 
eight years old, something like that. We're going to be 20 this year, which is kind of cool. Oh, that's great. Um, and, uh, and Cam looked at all of this that he's seeing, this kind of crazy environment. He says, who do people report to here? And it was kind of funny. It was like that, you know, like those recurring nightmares you had as a student, like, hey, Rich, the final for 405 is down the hall of the right. And I'm final. I haven't even gone to class yet. I haven't even bought the books yet. The final's today, right? And so, you know, he asked me this question and I'm feeling a little embarrassed. We're eight years old. It seems like there should be a clear answer. And I said, hold on a second, Cam. And I called five people, the team over. And I said, Cam, ask them your question. He goes, okay, Rich, I don't know why this is so hard. He says, who do people report to here? Because he, he couldn't, he, he sensed a strong structure. He sensed a great system that just worked day in and day out but he couldn't see where hierarchical authority fit into this picture. And it was really funny because the, the people who were standing in front, I brought five, I just called five people over. I said, come here, Cam has a question for you. They didn't know what the question was. Right. Cam asked them and they're all kind of like, uh, you know, what, uh, what would the answer be? And, and almost simultaneously, they pointed to each other. Nice. And he's like, okay, okay, you don't understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the answer I want. <laughs> well, he, he said that's impossible, right? And he said, okay, let's say you're going to hire somebody here. Who makes that decision? And they said, we do. And it's true. We have a very unusual hiring practice and I'm happy to talk about it. Um, but the team makes a decision. He goes, okay, okay, whatever. Uh, he says, how about promotions? How do we, how do you do that? He said, yeah, we do peer evaluations and we decide, we know what everybody's making and we decide who gets moved up and who doesn't. And if, if they're not getting moved up, we tell them why and what they need to work on. He said, okay, okay, what, what about firing people? <laughs> he says, well, they said, you know, if we're going to do that, we're, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be easy. And we'll pull Rich and James in, the two co-founders, to make sure we're not making some big mistake here or something like that. But yeah, it's our decision to do that. And so Cam was just, he couldn't, he couldn't believe what he was hearing. Yeah. Um, and so um, we replaced all of the traditional hierarchical models with simple, repeatable, measurable, visible systems. Mm. And we found out, and, and it wasn't like we didn't, you know, we've never pursued anything like holacracy or sociocracy or any of the ocracies. And it wasn't like we even decided at the beginning, we're not going to have bosses. We just found out we never needed them. So we never put them in place. And again, leadership can rise up from anywhere. And so we have people who, you know, who have very particular roles and they, they execute on those roles and they know where those roles fit in the system and everybody understands it. And the people who join us, and that's probably the best part of our process is the onboarding mechanism, make sure the new people understand it too. Rich, so people that have an understanding of, of the scale that you're doing this at, how many employees are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, so we're still small. We're at about 50 people. And so it's not ginormous and you know people often ask well what if it was 200 would it be the same and my answer is i don't know right we would make right. it yeah. we would make what it would need to be then and so uh but i know we wouldn't just automatically shift to okay we got to start putting bosses in place right right 
you you use your airplane analogy uh, and you talked about you use the word fear and one of the big things that stuck with me i can't remember which book it's in but you talked about leaders being an hvac system yes can you, can you talk about that yep a different model i used back then that um you know one of my jobs as ceo and co-founder is what i call pump fear out of the room right because you know fear is a mind killer if if you want creativity imagination invention and innovation you better have as little fear in the room as possible because that's coming from the most human part of our brain and it's the part that shuts down when we're afraid and so my job is to try and pump as much fear out of the room as possible. So if you think of leadership as an HVAC system, pump the cold air of fear in, filter out the ambiguity, warm it up to a nice safe temperature and pump safety back into the room. A wonderful picture. That's perfect. Think about are, that, that's great. What are some of the practical ways that you find yourself doing that? Or if you sense fear, like what's, what are, what are you, what is your now yeah, reaction? The, what is that mechanism that helps you? So, so let's talk up. about like, so, uh, you know, we're in the software industry, right? It's what we do for a living. So every day, you know, most of my revenue from the team is coming from, you know, people building software for other customers, right? We're building by the hour. Um, and, you know, customers have high expectations for that. You know, I'm spending a lot of money with you guys. So how's it going? And that sort of thing. And software, like a lot of activities, can be a little difficult to predict. How long is it going to take? Customers still want to have the best guess we can give them. And typically when you give them a guess, they expect you to, you know, hold on tight and make sure you meet the, uh, meet the prediction and that sort of thing. But sometimes you don't. And that's that's when the rubber meets the road in, a, in a, an organization that's trying to keep fear at bay. So our system breaks projects down into tiny little incremental pieces. We call them story cards. Uh, each story card is a unique and, and tangible piece of value we're going to deliver for our clients that can be estimated in hours. How many hours is it going to take? And we, when we estimate, we estimate in sort of blocks of two powers of two, two hours or four hours or eight hours or 16 or 32. Those are the only estimates we work with. So the team will guess, you know, they'll get together on a Monday morning and guess for the work they're going to do for the coming week and customers plan with us and that sort of thing. But of course, sometimes those guesses go awry. So, you know, couple of the programmers working together because we all work in pairs, which is one of the unique qualities of Menlo. And they guessed it was going to take two hours. They get 10 minutes into the card and all of a sudden they're like, uh-oh, <laughs> it's going to be like 16 hours. It's going to be, yeah. right? And right there is the moment of truth, right? What happens next? And if you have a fear-based environment, truth gets kicked under the rug, kicked down the road, and it goes into hiding. Mm -hmm. Fear doesn't make bad news go away. Fear makes bad news go away. <laughs> in a safe environment, our developers stand up, walk over to the project manager and say, hey, Lisa, that card we were working on this morning, we looked at it. It's not two hours. It's going to be 16. Now, I can tell you, as a project manager, every cell in Lisa's body just wants to go, oh, Really? I mean, are you sure you, you can do it in two? I mean, oh my gosh, my perfect plan is ruined. 
But we have literally taught our project managers in this critical moment to smile, sincerely smile and say, thank you for sharing that information. Mm. That's a huge moment. Because if she, if, even if she didn't, if, even if she said the word, thank you for sharing that information, <laughs> right? All she has to do is deliver a little bit of fear in this and the news will stop flowing. Yeah. Yeah. Now that we have the information, now she can talk to them and say, are you sure? Can we look at the card again and make sure you're understanding? Maybe you, you think it's bigger than it is because you've actually misinterpreted. It can be a conversation, but ultimately she might have to carry that water back to the customer. Right. And that's where James and I as co-founders will have to support her if she gets in hot water with the client. Cause well, I can, I can have a great effect and James can have a great effect on how our team behaves around this. We're not sure how our customers are going to behave. Right, right. We could drag a sled full of fear into the room every day. And so we might have to back them up or at least give them the skills or the confidence to know that they're going to be okay when they're carrying that news to the client. So is there, is there any like client expectation that you establish up front that, I mean, I would, I would guess your reputation has gone way before you, is there any kind of, hey, we, we don't do fear here, we do reality here, and you got to deal with it? And, you know, like, do you bring them into the process you in know, any way? You know what's fun now, and, you know, and this wasn't always the case, but when you've written two books on the subject, a lot of customers who show up have read the books. And so they're not surprised when they hear that, oh, gee, Benlos operates like the rhetoric of the books. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, and, and again, you know, they're in their own environments. And, you know, when we do work for like the big automotive companies, they have their own cultures as well. Um, but it's, it's actually where the storytelling piece comes in. You know, I remember one time uh, <laughs> I was giving a talk to a company down in Atlanta. They had invited me in to speak to the concepts we're talking about today. And I talked about this accountability around estimating that I just described, right? And I said, by the way, accountability at Menlo is circular. They're like, what? I said, yeah, if I expect something from you, I should deliver something of equal or greater value in return. So for example, if, um, if my expectation is you're gonna deliver bad news <laughs> when it arrives, my accountability to you is I'm going to make an environment safe for you to do that. You're not going to get punished for delivering bad news. Right. And, and I'll tell you, there was this guy in the room. Remember, I'm giving this talk on this stuff to this company and the CEO's there and the technical team is there and all the, all the officers of the company are there. And this VP of marketing stands up. And he thrusts his finger out at me and he's angry. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, PGify it here. He's like, this is BS. I said, what's going on? He says, well, let me tell you about how accountability works here. <laughs> I said, okay. He said, well, if you said you'd get it done two hours, you're going to get it done two hours or else. I said, or else what? He says, or else you're coming in tonight. He said, you're coming in this weekend. I don't care if it's Christmas morning, you're going to be here. I don't care if it's your kid's birthday, you're going to be here. I said, oh, interesting. Now, everybody's watching me because they're all silent because I guess oh, yeah. this, guy was, this guy was a hothead for you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, they were wondering what I was going to say. Now, I was really calm because, heck, I was going to be gone the next day anyway. So. <laughs> right, I'm leaving. <laughs> and uh, 
I said, well, Bill, I said, let's assume that I went back to Menlo and implemented your system at my company. What do you think would happen? And it was interesting because he literally thought about my question. And I watched like every cell in his body change from head to toe as he contemplated the answer. And he said, you know, Rich, I'll tell you what would happen. You'd start lying about being done. Your team would start quick kicking quality problems under the rug and down the road. He says, you'd start delivering poor quality products to your product, to your customers. You'd start losing sales, which would result in market share. You'd go from number one in your market to number three. He said, Rich, you'd have the same thing happening at your company that we have happening here. Literally, I checked in with that team two years later. That guy was never the same since because he realized he was at the core of the problem. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow, that's powerful. You know, you mentioned culture. And I want to I want to take a moment here and go inside Menlo, right? Because pretty non-traditional structure, right? That most of our listeners are, are, are aware or heard of. And what I'm really interested in, Rich, is like you mentioned, you know, GM's culture and Menlo's culture, totally opposite probably, right? And what I'm curious about, how would you describe the soul of your organization? We are an organization that just deeply cares about each other there's a lot of empathy at Menlo um, not just as colleagues but as human beings mm. and you see that in everything we do we have this practice at Menlo that we call high-tech anthropology and their job is to go out into the world and study the people that will one day use our work mm. and understand their goals as human beings, understand mm. their life story. How do they get to do the job they're doing today? What do they like about their job? What don't they like about their job? We take as much information as we can about those people and build it into the design process of our company. And so you see this empathy going in every direction. You see this caring going in every direction. And then ultimately, when you get to that point, it becomes you know, there's a, there's a joviality at Menlo. I mean, it's hard work that we do and it's taxing work and we're not happy every minute of every day that would probably require medication, <laughs> but, but there is that palpable human energy that you can feel when you come visit. And it's, yeah. I think it's simply because you've got a group of people that just really care about one another. You have, yeah. you have a few habits that make sure that the like corporate habits, not individual habits, but corporate habits that make sure that those things remain. Yeah. You know, I mean, let's talk about corporate outcomes and then what are the habits that lead to the outcomes? Right. Uh, because uh, I think this is, you know, probably, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, I know, I, I know enough about traction to know that you guys love to look at the systems and the structures that are going on inside of a corporation. So, we work 40 hour work weeks. We never work weekends. We never deny or delay vacation requests. So it is a very sustainable human pace over 20 years. I believe of all the records we have at Menlo, that one will never be broken. It's like Ty Cobb's uh, beta, beta. Yeah. that yeah. one will never be broken. <laughs> um, and so how do we do that? What systems do we use to show that people don't have to work more than 40 hours a week? Because quite frankly, our belief is that tired programmers make bad software and we don't want to make yeah. bad software. Yeah. And, you know, and we live our lives to 
at work to take care of our families and spend time with them. So we don't want to deny vacation requests. So the habits we have is we pair people together. Two people, one computer, working on the same task at the same time for eight hours a day. And we switch those pairs every five days. And what that creates then is an organization where no individual is a tower of knowledge. So not only do people get to take the vacation that's due them, but when they go on vacation, they're not taking a laptop with them. We actually, through peer pressure, forbid them from checking email, which blows their spouse's minds because their spouses are over there clicking on email <laughs> every single morning. And they're like, how come you're going out to the beach to the kid? Don't you have to check work email before you go out? They're like, nope. In fact, we'll chastise them if we catch them checking email. Oh, that's great. And so this system of pairing people, this habit of pairing people and switching the pairs every five days means that we are, we are teaching, we are sharing knowledge, we are disseminating technical knowledge throughout the team. And what it allows us to do then is if a client needs to go faster, if we're getting close to a deadline and we think we're not gonna hit it, we can actually expand the team because if four people are working on a project for you know, a number of weeks and suddenly the client goes, you gotta go faster. We can take four others, plug them in with the four who have the knowledge. Now we've doubled the size of the team and we're going nearly twice as fast. And in that way, we could still hit the deadline without kicking in the overtime. And this has been our tradition for 20 years. And the net effect of this is quality source. Yeah. We've had two emergencies in 20 years. Oh, man. Wow. My life used to be two emergencies a day. <laughs> Every five day. minutes. <laughs> that would have been a good day if it was just two emergencies. Yeah, sure. Rich, uh, first of all, I'm pretty sure the three of us could talk all day or all week. <laughs> Um, so I want to thank you for hanging out with us. I think this is exactly what I was hoping for. There's, you, you bring so much inspiration. And I think the inspiration comes from, you know, the things that we all wish were possible. You just decided you were going to do them and make them so. And, and the consequences, whether they're logical or illogical, you had a vision of a different future. And I just, I think you, you, what you've done, what you've created is such the, pinnacle of this visionary entrepreneurial life that we live so uh, i want to honor you in that i want to thank you in that and thank you for coming on and inspiring tractionville because you're right sometimes in in the world of uh, systems and process and procedure we forget why we're doing it in the first place and we we end up building the, the castle that becomes our jail cell and um, so thank you um as we wrap this is, this is as if you haven't given us enough to chew on. I want to give you one final open-ended question. Just what wisdom, guidance, encouragement, nugget would you want? What, what's your soapbox you would want everybody in Tractionville, business leaders out there across America, across the globe to know before we hang up today? I think I, over the years, my wisdom gear got chiseled and it kicked in and things started to look simpler to me Uh in my older age than they did when I was younger, when everything just looked complex and, and uh, untenable. Um, and one of my simple managerial edicts is that a business defines itself as much by what it chooses to say no to as what it chooses to say yes to. And the corollary to that is the devil always comes carrying cash. 
Mm-hmm. Great. You know, and you're looking at that pile of cash in the table and you're in a tough spot and all you want, just need the money. And every once in a while, and this isn't easy and I'm not, you know, I don't want to make anybody think that I got to where I am through some like snap of my fingers. Cause this has been 20 years of hard work every single day, just like every, just like all of your listeners are doing, but it's worth it. And the, the, you know, it's, it's not easy, but it's important. And I will just simply say to consider, we have a poster at Menlo uh, that comes out of the group Vital Smarts that wrote Crucial Conversations and Influencer. And this is a maddening quote. It's maddening to us when we're having troubles. It says, your organization is perfectly designed to create the behaviors you're currently experiencing. And I'm sure this is, you know, exactly the kind of things you guys talk about all the time. And the beautiful optimism inside of that is when you're looking at the problems of today, you can say to yourself first, oh, that thing Rich said, yeah, I guess we created these problems, didn't we? Yes, that's true. But you also have the power to change them because you can redesign your organization to create a different set of outcomes and behaviors. And that is in all of our power. That is good. That is good. So many business owners, I don't think they realize they, they can engineer their culture, their soul, right? Uh, great stuff, Rich. Thank you so much. I, I'm leaving. I, I've got like half a page of notes here. So <laughs> I, I got sucked in. What can I say? No, oh, this has been delightful. What a great way to start my day. Thank you, Rich. Tractionville, hope you enjoyed this. I know you did. And I know you're inspired. And I know you know someone else out there that could use Rich's words in their life today. Maybe they're in a tough spot and need a vision of a brighter future. Will you pass this on and share it with them? And we'll see you next week for Tractionville Tuesday. Thank you.